All right, folks, it's Marvin Cash. I'm the host of the Articulate Fly, and I'm here on the show floor on Sunday at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival with Rick Pope, founder and chairman of Temple Fork Outfitters. Welcome to the show, Rick. Marvin, thanks, man. It's great to see you again, and it's great to be at the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival. I don't know if this is 12, 14, but Bo's done a great job with this event, the venue, the trying to get new people in the game. Love everything about it. Yeah, it's great. Did you guys have a good weekend? Yeah, I mean, weather today was a little bit less than ideal. Kind of cut the traffic down a little bit, but every vendor here is a customer and a friend, and we got to spend more time with customers and friends that are not necessarily your traditional consumer. It was great. That's great. Well, I ask all of my guests what their earliest fishing memory was. I was fishing before I could remember anything with cane poles and we had a creek and a river not far from my house growing up on a farm out in the country in central Texas. Uh, cane poles, bluegills, farm ponds, all that kind of stuff. Early vintage tincara, I guess you'd call it. Good old cane pole? Absolutely. And so when did you get pulled in the dark side of fly fishing? I started uh, a bit in the early 60s with a uh, Shakespeare wonder rod and a uh, a wind-up reel, which would get a bluegill up on plane when you press the button on the wind-up reel. And a foam spider that once it got eaten a few times, it would sink a little bit and put it over a brim bed, and it was irresistible. Um, first hardcore fly fishing, cold water fly fishing, was on the Bow River back in the late 70s. Uh, deer hunting up there was less than gratifying because it's one and done and freezing cold. And, and the outfitter that I hunted with had the bow river company, which was at the time, the only outfit on the bow river that did float trips. And I'm telling Russell Thornberry that, you know, I I need to find something else to do. So to come back in the summer and, and, and go fishing on the boat. Um, 78, I think it was. And, uh, God, it was incredible. My skills were horrible. The fishing was incredible. And uh, had a great time. Uh, Go go up, spend a week, come back with wrists and hands blistered and taped up and, you know, didn't know how to cast. Knew how to fish, which is an advantage, but it helped. That was the the, the first, you know, the, the first indoctrination into cold water fishing. And so as you got deeper into fly fishing, who were your mentors in the sport? I uh, met a friend that I ended up buying the business from in Calgary, Ken Wellams, during the early 80s time. And and Ken uh, got to be really close. He was the sage rep in Western Canada, uh, 3M scientific anglers distributor. He imported flies, did Wardell waders, all this stuff that was now consuming my passion and interest and taking all my money and um, we agreed to go on a trip to Florida to fly fish for bonefish, which I had saltwater fished, but never fly fished in a saltwater. And the bank I was working for at the time kind of ran off into the ditch, 1981, as all banks in Texas did. So I ended up having to cancel. I, I, I moved to New York for a year and Ken goes by himself and gives me a report. He said it was 
incredible environment. Just love the environment. But the guide he had, traditional keys guide, I don't know the name, thankfully, just chewed him out nonstop. And, you know, Ken's a wonderful fly caster, steelhead type caster. He said, I'm going to call my friend Lefty Cray and find the name of a better guide and book again for next year. You want to go? Absolutely. Happened to be Flip Pallet. So uh, I, I believe it was 82 in August. I go back with Ken to Florida and we fish with Flip for a week. And, uh, you know, Flip became a great friend, was one of the early mentors. Um, we, we caught a few bonefish. We messed up a lot of shots, but we learned and went back the next year. And I learned that Flip loved hunting more than he loved fishing. Fishing was work for him. Deer hunting, that was his passion. So family ranch in central Texas in the hill country, Flip started coming to the ranch and hunting. Ken would come down from Canada. We'd spend a week at the ranch. Then we'd go spend a week in Florida in the, in the late summer with Flip and go spend a week in Canada with Ken in the, in the middle of the summer on the Bow River. And um, it, it all kind of evolved from that uh, 15 years in three different Wall Street firms, uh, listening to these guys talk about the fly fishing industry. And I guess it was probably 86 we did a trip to Belize that was hosted. We had Lefty, Flip, and Mark Sosin. Wow. And six anglers. And that was my first FaceTime with Lefty Cray. And we um, had probably the worst trip ever for bonefish in Belize. But the impression that Lefty met, left with all of us was, was truly incredible. Um, forward a few years, 95. Uh, I was at Bear Stearns and they decided they were closing the institutional fixed income office in Dallas. So the option was to move back to New York or to Chicago, you know, family ranch in Texas. And in the mid nineties, this was not as much fun anymore. And it looked like the opportunity was kind of dimming a little bit. So I bought the business from, from Ken in the U S and, uh, at the time, Springbrook Trading, we we did waders and flies. And uh, mercifully, we don't do either one anymore. I found out that all waders leak, just a question of when. And we had like 3,000 SKUs of flies by the time we finally managed to get out of the fly business. Uh, it was a couple of years in. When the idea of doing some inexpensive fly rods kind of evolved, and this is post river runs through it, late nineties. So, you know, there was an incredible amount of social interest in fly fishing, not necessarily for the best of reasons, but it was the cocktail party pastime to talk about, um, you know, Brad Pitt standing on a rock, casting a bamboo fly rod. It was, it was epic. Uh, really created a spike in interest in the in the whole sport. The industry responded by ratcheting up prices more and more and more and more. And you know, I I had dutifully bought all the Sage and Winston and G Loomis rods as they came out every year, newest, latest, and greatest, and they were expensive. 
And that barrier to entry kind of became a issue, an opportunity. Um, we started looking around sourcing different fly rods from Asia. Ended up finding a young guy that had worked for uh, Daiwa out of uh, out of college. He had his engineering degree in chemical engineering from uh, Seoul. He worked for Daiwa, then he worked for Zebco. Tulsa almost killed him. He moved back to Korea, hung his shingle up, and said, I'm going to be a OEM rod maker. Uh, about the time we held our hand up and said, we're looking for OEM rod manufacturing. Um, two or three years in, he sent this heartstring tugging email saying that he's very concerned about the Chinese taking over their businesses and all of the imports now, you know, the Chinese are taking away the business from Korea. So I suggested if, if he would be exclusively our factory, we would try and build a brand. Um, turned out great. Both Gary Loomis and Lefty Cray called BJM the greatest rod engineer they'd ever worked with. And uh, to this day, he continues to be our exclusive source factory. We're exclusive distributor for everything he does. All of the engineering, design, concepts, mandrels, strictly proprietary. Uh, but it's been a great ride. What was it like going from a career in finance into manufacturing and kind of what was the biggest surprise there? Because that's really kind of different, I would imagine, uh, going from Wall Street to actually running and operating a manufacturing company. Given I had no clue what I was going to do or how to do it, I, you know, the, the, the biggest shock was going from making good money to nothing. Yeah. So feeding this beast for the first five years or so was a, was a real you know, lesson and, and becoming frugal. It, um, um, as, as we kind of turn the corner in a non-traditional way with TFO, uh, we put more focus and emphasis on consumers than we did on advertising, traditional, you know, media marketing, print ads, etc., which were pretty much dominant before, of course, before Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it, it's been incredibly gratifying, um, probably of all the friends I've ever made in my life. Um, this family has been more gratifying to me than any of the groups I've been with ever, uh, really good people in fly fishing. Yeah. I think there's some of the most generous people I've ever met with Temple Fork. When was that moment when you knew that what you wanted to do when you bought Springbrook was going to happen? Can you remember that moment? It would have been the late nineties, uh, four or five years in we had, um, you know, started off with three different two piece rods, five, six, and eight weight. As I recall, they retail for 75 and $80, right? We wanted dealers. We didn't want to sell direct, uh, in the process of finding something else to do to avoid moving to New York or Chicago, you know, I looked at catalog idea, retail store idea, um, but but felt like something that's a little more institutionalized would be more controllable and, and less of a dice roll. Um, we went to a show 
the biggest retail show in the country. Used to be Somerset, New Jersey. Now it's uh, Edison, New Jersey. Chuck Ferimsky, uh, three-day show, 12,000 people. And our second sales rep was in New England, Jake Jakespeare. He said, "We, I want to be your rep, but you have to do the show in Somerset. Well, that's cool, but we don't have any dealers. So you're going to go up there and show rods and not have any dealers. And that didn't, didn't sound very compelling. So I said, I'll ship you 50 of each, five, six, and eight weight rods. We'll sell them at retail out of the booth, Somerset. So Friday, Saturday noon, we're out of rods. All the dealers there are upset. We're selling direct. And here's some, you know, fly-by-night importer selling rods direct in our market. Four weeks later, we had four dealers. And uh, that was really the epiphany moment that, you know, this is going to work. Dealers felt like we were the Antichrist because we were too cheap. Consumers felt like we were a real opportunity because we were affordable. And um, that, that gap that created the opportunity was pricing things where people thought they could sell rods as opposed to pricing things on a fair market basis. You know, we have to have some margin, but you don't get too greedy, right? Or you leave a, a big, big gap. Right. We kind of fill that gap a little bit. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because, you know, at this point, because it's been, gosh, 20 years, right? That Four people, and yeah, and people know, know you for building quality, affordable gear. But, I mean, you've changed a lot of other things in the industry. You know, your approach to advisory staff, I think, is different from any other rod manufacturer I've seen. I mean, you've got probably the deepest, most prestigious group of anglers. How did you do that? And where did the idea come up to make that happen? It really started with Lefty. Um, it, it started with Lefty because he embraced the idea of, of being affordable. A guy that was buying $14 Sears chinos and casting a $650 rod at the end of his casting presentations, people would gather around him and ask, well, Lefty, if I don't have this much money to spend or don't want to spend this much money to get in the game, he was aware of us and mentioned us a couple of times to to consumers which kind of created some ill will within the industry but i uh, i decided after 2001 to write lefty a letter because his heart was clearly on the affordable end of the spectrum ask him to come be our lead rod designer and uh distinctly different than engineering design is the application of a product the engineering is how to build it we had a an interview in uh denver at the icast show one year guys wanted to video our raw designer engineer so it was really two people right there's lefty on the design side and there's bj on the engineering side so Lefty dominated the, the interview for the first 30 minutes. And finally, the guy turned to BJ and he says, so what do you do for TFO? He said, well, I'm the engineer. He does the casting. I do the math. Uh, once Lefty joined us, it, it, to the great chagrin of many in the industry that wanted to sell expensive rods, the concept, and we didn't pay him a lot of money. It wasn't, it wasn't about money. 
it was about his desire to kind of give back and make things affordable to get more people in the game. So Lefty would call and say, do you know Ed Jabarowski? Well, I certainly know who he is, Lefty. Well, he might be interested in working with us. Could you send him some rods and let him play with them and kind of get some? And then do you know Nick Curcione? Do you know Bob Clouser? In fact, when he called and asked if I knew Bob Clouser, he was like, we have a pretty big family right now. I don't know if we got room for anybody else. Lefty, we'll build another wing on the house to get Bob Clouser to join us. So, you know, Flip and Wanda Taylor and ultimately Gary Loomis, you know, I guess most recently Blaine Chocolate. <clears throat> Many have accused us of saying, well, all your advisory staff is really old. I, I, it's hard to find young generation people that you want to take a lot of advice from. These guys, you know, they know fishing. They know application of, the, of you know, what rods are supposed to do what they need to do. So the design is a whole bunch of somewhat older guys that have contributed ideas and actions. Um, I remember distinctly Clouser second year with us, having breakfast, lefty Nick Curcione, our engineer, Ed Jaworowski. Clouser at breakfast says, you know, I, I love our rods. I've cast through all of them and, and, but, I think there's an action that we need that we don't have. So it gets the old EF Hutton commercial. It goes really quiet. He said, you know, when you, when you backcast a weighted fly, it tends to shock the rod and you turn it around. I think it was Curcione. Could have been Ed. You mean like a Clouser minnow? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, weighted Clouser minnow. He said, if we had a little bit longer, softer tip, but still had a stout butt to fight a fish with, it would take some of that shock out of a, of a back cast with a weighted fly. Ed says, Bob, we don't need another fly rod. You need casting lessons. <laughs> so hanging out with these guys, I mean, they were like a bunch of high school kids and just became wonderful friends. They still are, yeah. you know, miss lefty great, greatly, but, um, you know, as a, as a family, yeah, truly luckiest guy that I know to have worked with all of them and to continue work, work, working with all of them. Yeah, it, it's really great. And, and also, I, I think your approach at T Temple Fork to outreach is different. Like, I really learned about your, your rods through your interaction with Project Healing Waters, and I know you're active with Casting for Recovery. I mean, that's very different. How did that come about? A mutual friend, John Bass, who passed away last year, uh, who knew lefty and John was a paraplegic wheelchair. So he needed some adaptations made to rods so he could cast and fish. He was a passionate fly fisherman. He called me up one day and, uh, said, I've got this friend in Maryland that is been going through some treatment at, uh, Walter Reed and, you know, retired Navy captain, Ed Nicholson. And he wants to take some of these wounded vets that are coming back from the Middle East. He wants to take them out, teach them how to fly cast, tie flies, and do that stuff. You got any rods you can send out and help him out? Absolutely. You know, being one who did not serve, feeling an obligation to try and help is powerful. So uh, 
couple of times that year we sent gear out, let Ed take people out, cast, and we had, um, again, the show in Somerset. Ed, Doug Maddy, who was at the Pentagon at the time, and Evan Forsyth, who was one of their first uh, recovery participants. Uh, this is before Project Healing Waters. Ed came into the booth with thanks, and, you know, we want, we want to do more of this. And I suggested that we'll make the program a couple of rods, five weight and eight weight, you know, and you, you won't make a bunch of money on it. We give all of our profits to the organization, but, you know, it gives you something to show and hand out and look at and feel and touch and has your logo on it. Um, I guess it was summer before last, um, uh, David Folkert said that they had already through 200 plus programs, direct purchases from us over, over 11,000 fly rods. Wow. So you think about how many people that's touched and how many people that's helped. Very, very gratifying. And it's much the same with casting for recovery, breast cancer, real recovery, you know, mostly men recovering from cancer or in cancer treatment. Um, we're, we're working on, uh, a project, the Mayfly project. The name doesn't tell you what they do, but they take foster children and mentor them in fly fishing. And they believe and have proven that, you know, a foster child with fly fishing skills and interest becomes a much greater candidate for adoption within the family of people that fly fish because... There's a certain amount of affluence and a certain amount of shared passion. And um, so we're, we're working on a, a couple of rods for that program as well. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. It's um, I think people that haven't fished before just never really understand the healing power of being outdoors. You read more and more. In fact, I saw an article, uh, I think this morning, on, on one of the uh, news feeds I get on my, my phone on the Internet about you know, getting people outdoors and fishing and how much more beneficial that is than trying to medicate with drugs. Uh, color me not surprised, you yeah. know? Uh, no, it's, yeah, it's it's what keeps me from uh, being a bad person. Well, you know, it, it it's, it's about as mentally calming and soothing as anything I've ever done. It's something you can do into your 80s and lefties case into your 90s. So team sports are great. In spite of the fact the Cowboys lost last night, the the good news is when you learn to fly fish, you, you do it the rest of your life, and you can do it anywhere—saltwater, freshwater, warm water. Um, it makes you extremely more aware of the environment, the water resource, the entomology that's going on, the the things that we need to pay more attention to and take care of. Yeah. Um, it. You know, from a capitalist standpoint, it's easy to say you just want to get more people in the game. That's true. But from a passionate standpoint, you want to get more people in the game because they're going to do more good for the stuff that you love to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, And, and you know, one other, I guess, kind of the, the last part of the kind of the three things I think about in addition to affordable, high-quality gears, you guys have a really different approach to marketing. You know, I see you at a lot more shows. I mean, it's just a different way. Talk a little bit about how that came about and, and you decided we're going to do things in a different way and market our products. 
pretty simple. We didn't have enough money to go out and spend $5,000 for the inside front cover of Fly Fisherman magazine. But you go out and make friends, and you make them happy with your product. Uh, you define value as the optimization of price and performance, right? And any price can define a consumer's level of value given proper performance. Um, so, so we worked on keeping the price as low as we could, making as many friends as we could, shaking hands with as many people as we could, and asking them to tell our friends. And that worked very, very slowly. Um, advertising creates a need for dealers to feel like they, they better stock something, but it doesn't create sell-through. Consumer demand ultimately is what drives the bus. And as long as we keep consumers happy, they'll tell their friends and come back and want more. And that's proven to be the case uh, over the last 24 years. And, and, you know, it's interesting reading trade publications. And I, I know you're concerned about participation, and you and I have talked about this a lot. I think the most recent um, industry data I've seen is that half the people that fly fish fish two to four days a year. Um, that's deeply concerning to me is do you see participation being the greatest challenge to the industry or do you think there are other challenges out there? Well, you know, the challenges are the learning curve is the biggest challenge. And I don't care if you fish two days a year or, or 20 days a year. Um, there are people that learn how to fly cast that don't know how to fish. There's a big learning exposure gap. If they don't know how to fish, it's, it's, it's hard to know how to present the fly, work the fly, all that stuff. If you know how to fish, it, it, it means that the, the learning curve is going to be a lot more flat with uh, the casting part. Because while practically the casting rod, spinning rod, loading, unloading, releasing, it's the same. The, the the problem is casting, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet of fly line versus a, a half-ounce lure. It's a hell of a lot different. And so there's an intimidation factor. Uh, as fly fishers, we're looked at still, and, and we do conventional rods. You know, we're elitists and snobs, and which couldn't be further from the truth. I recall an early trip with lefty in East Texas bass fishing 10 o'clock in the morning. It starts to get windy. Lefty turns around and he says, Rick, did you bring one of those damn spinning rods? Lefty, you, you're a fly fisherman. You can't fit all oh, hell with that. He said, I just want to catch fish. I don't care what we catch them with. That's the right attitude. If, if you can catch a fish with a fly, it's, it's so much more rewarding, personally gratifying, adrenaline inspirational, than just doing it with a, a spinning or casting rod. And I'm not opposed to either one, but, but, but given the environment and the opportunity, the fly is just a lot more fun. Sure. Once you get over the learning curve of casting or once you get up to the speed of, of uh, you know, now that you learn how to cast, you, you learn how to fish, right? Sure. And I know relatively recently you've moved into conventional tackle kind of, is that just a natural evolution of what you were doing? And did you see an opportunity to be as disruptive in conventional tackle as you've been in, in fly tackle? We don't have the price advantage in conventional tackle that we had in the fly fishing market. 
So as opposed to being the the very affordable high performance, you know, we're kind of the mid-priced high performance in conventional tackle. Uh, very different market. Consumers are very different than fly consumers. Uh, you know, they lock onto a brand and they fill their boat with one brand and, and that's good. The, the hard part is getting kind of breaking into that whole thing. The process is the same though, uh, Marvin, the, you know, you, you go out and you make somebody real happy and ask them to tell their friends and it grows from there. So we're, uh, we started in 2009, uh, when Gary Loomis joined us and helped us design our first rods, he subsequently moved on and, and now is working directly with edge, the little factory behind his house. Um, uh, you know, his influence was great. His insight into actions and, you know, consumer desires and interests and all that stuff, wonderful. But from an engineering standpoint, he moved a different direction. We moved on. Um, it's it's really a, a market that's 20 times bigger than the fly market. Um, our, our factory in South Korea, Incheon, uh, we tested its capacity limits last year and um, we're, we're kind of working on that, addressing that. Um, uh, the conventional side though is really where our next big growth opportunity is. Meanwhile, we don't step off the accelerator on the fly side. We're prototyping new stuff and advisors and ambassadors have ideas and different fisheries have new techniques and, you know, whether it's a Jason Randall and, you know, high stick nymphing or, you know, a Blaine chocolate and a musky rod or, uh, you know, it, it, it's really fun and challenging. That's fantastic. Can you share a little bit with my listeners about what 2019 holds in store for Temple Fort? Incredibly optimistic about 2019. Um, 2018, in spite of what the media would sound like, was a great year for consumers it's almost like people have been working so hard they didn't have time to fish. Um, it's an interesting industry because in economic downtimes, people get laid off. They don't work as much. They they got more time to fish. So we're, we're kind of a counter-cyclical industry. If times are really good and you're at full employment, you know, it, it, it's, people are too busy. You know, you got two income-earning families with kids and no time to fish. Well, I think there's a point at which putting down the electronics as a Gen Xer, uh, exposing yourself to the outdoors, I mean, it's way better. And I think we're kind of at a crossroads right there. Um, you know, electronics and gaming may not have run its course but I think the world is ready for an alternative to that. And I think fishing gives a great alternative to some of the things that have kept people away from the outdoors. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I work really hard to get my boys outside and off the devices. And There you go. You've seen Jasper this weekend. He's had a heck of a good time. Absolutely, like a bottle rocket with a stick <laughs> broke off, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rick, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon. It's always a pleasure. I enjoy spending time with you so much. Thank you. You're a great friend, and I appreciate your contribute, 
to everything we're trying to do, which is get more people in the game. Well, I appreciate Thanks, that. I appreciate that, Rick. And folks, um, if you like the show, I'd love for you to leave me a review in iTunes. You can subscribe on the website to the newsletter and blog. Everybody have a great week. Thanks again, Rick. Tight lines, everybody. Thanks, Marvin.